Welcome to another episode of Adoption, The Making of Me. I'm Louise Brown. And I'm Sarah Reinhardt. Make sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Adoption, The Making of Me podcast. Please remember to subscribe, share, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Hi, Sarah. Good afternoon. Hey, Louise. Good to see you. I always love this time with you. Me too. I love our chapter reviews. Me too. So here we are back in the book by Betty Jean Lifton, Journey of the Adopted Self, which we know is a big one here. And we are in chapter three, The Conspiracy of Silence. And right away, again, I just, I find her to be an incredible writer. I, I know. Like the way she writes is really intense and right to the point, but also with some cool stuff thrown in. So right like, away. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, go ahead. The, oh, right, I was gonna say, probably right. going to say the same thing I am. <laughs> <laughs> right away. She gets into the uh, historical lesson about conspiracy and it's all uh, based around Oedipus. Should I read this? Right. That he's the quintessential adoptee, which I, I found that kind of funny. <laughs> Oedipus never, is the quintessential adoptee. I never knew this. I don't know that I knew that much about Oedipus. I didn't know either. Yeah. I didn't know the no. whole depth of it. I, I felt like I just know these little things we know about it, but it's like here. Killed I'm, his mother and slept, yeah. killed his father, slept with his mother, you know, just as a, the, she the, did bring up Freud and I'm not a giant Freud fan myself, but. Uh, well, she kind of is right. So she says the very word adoption has dark connotations. The fall forth images of exposure and infants and infants. And, will you say that word for me, please? Infants. I'm tongue tied. Where is it? Which infantide? (laughs) Infanticide, isn't it? Is it on the second page? Yeah, that society tries to repress. Freud turned to the myth of Oedipus abandoned as a baby for one of his basic theories on human behavior: the child's attraction to the parent of the opposite sex. But as an adoptee who has always had an affinity for Oedipus, I recognize the myth as an adoption story morality tale about the desperation of birth families who dispose of their kin and the consequences of secrecy in the adopted family. I mean, what a way to start a chapter. I know. History lesson on something we all know about. I just thought that's neat. Yes, it it really was. And what a tragedy, right? It it was a whole tragedy. You know, the big lesson being how secrets really are not a good thing, which I'm jumping forward, but there was when she talked about the different kinds of secrecy, right? The so, individual, the family secrets. Oh, if within the family, the three. Right. So there's the kind of secret where a person has a secret to themselves. Then there's the kind of secret where a couple of people in the family have a secret that another one doesn't know about. And then there's secrets where you Everyone in the family knows, but the outside world doesn't. None of it's healthy, right? But it's healthy. I this love- is what she said. This is what causes a dysfunctional family. Yeah. And then she gets into what's a functional family is a family that speaks about open issues. Mm-hmm. Functional family, you don't speak about the issues. So we're hoping like in modern adoptions, the conversation is open and people are talking about things so people can say, oh, that's my birthright. And that's my birth family. This is my adopted family and I'm loved by all. We're hoping that's where it's going. This part here, you found it here. It is the individual secret, which one person keeps from the other, the internal secret, which a few family members keep and the shared secret when all family members band together to keep outsiders knowing from what is happening is the internal secret, 
She's concerned with the secret that is kept from the adopted child, which I I, know, which is kind of like you're told you're adopted. Some people don't even know they're adopted. And then let's never discuss anything about you again with that. (laughs) Right. Now we've got that out of the way. Let's move on with life and as if it never happened, kind of. And in all fairness, I really do think that many families, I don't have any numbers on anything. This is just from me thinking is that most people back, especially in the baby scoop era, they didn't know the damage that that's causing to their children. I mean, most people want to be good parents. And it is kind of odd because the way we raised our kids and stuff, it's all about being open and talking about, it's like a shift in in societal, what is that called? Ethics or how you raise children, good and bad things have happened with it. But I do think that if people had known, would a lot more families have been open? Well, I don't know, because she also talks in here about all the issues, you know, like the, the infertility. So couples mainly are adopting because of their own infertility. And if unless they really face that issue, then mm-hmm. it's, you know, so people want to talk about adoption being this selfless thing. And, you know, frankly, it really isn't necessarily so. And then on top of that, if the parents haven't grieved their infertility issues, then they're going to project onto the kid. And, you know, she talks about, are they wondering somewhere in their head, what would mine have been like? What would my baby have been like? And, you know, and that's of an energy that, that adopted kids pick up on. So you're correct. Cause she does say the secret in today's adopted family is not that the child is adopted, but who the child is. So the adoptive parents often know things about the birth parents that they do not reveal. So even though it's modern now, they still kind of keep it because once the child suspects that primal secrets are being kept from here, he or she, they may come to perceive their parents as adversaries who stand between them and their rightful parents. And then it's this whole like, who's the normal children? Am I the normal family? There's something that I really... It struck me because this is definitely how I felt all my life. You know, once they suspect the primal secrets, as you just said, and then the child may envy normal children, those raised by their real mothers and fathers for knowing how to maneuver in the real world, cut off from blood roots that could ground you in the universe. They feel like a foreigner who needs a guidebook to show the way that others know naturally. That's absolutely 100% how I felt my entire life. I didn't know how to maneuver the world. But here, going back really quickly to the stuff about the infertility, because I, I really, sure, I don't necessarily think that parents are adopting with bad intentions, but I do believe there has to be something to, to work at because it really is about ego. Why not share that information with the kid? There is no other reason unless their egos are too fragile or they're too insecure you know, and it, it, that isn't healthy. And that I think is the key piece here that like, there has to be some way that prospective adoptive parents are getting therapy, really deep therapy ahead of time, you know, before putting this, I don't know, that was yeah. a tangent, but I mean, that's, no, that's part of the whole reform, right? Is to hopefully have therapy before adoption takes place. Right. But not just, oh, here's a few therapy sessions. Now you get your baby really deep work to heal that wound of loss before you go on and then take, you know, adopt a kid. I don't know. And therapy for a birth parent that's giving up their child. Mm -hmm. Do they really want to be giving up their child? Has anyone helped them through all the things they could go through first? So like first, let's try to tackle 
should they should this child stay in the family and if they can't for some whatever reason that is then the next steps i i mean there's so much that needs to be done <laughs> and don't don't change their names that said though i'm i'm glad i'm a sarah and not a donna <laughs> <laughs> right here, Donna. I think of that. <laughs> You'd be Tiffany. <laughs> <laughs> Tiffany and Donna. We're different friends in a different life. Maybe we should write that. Like <laughs> that could be the sliding doors. Tiffany and Donna. <laughs> and Tiffany and Donna meet in the, in that other life, just proving that, you know, our friendship was always meant to be. One thing she she brings up that I thought was interesting because I don't think I knew that much about it, but a little bit about it because of that article you and I read is she gets into the history of where adoption became secret. Yes. This part was, you and I have touched upon in the United States because we have read about Georgia Tan and what went down with her making, I mean, really, she's kind of the founder of the secrecy of adoption thing that went on. Right. And, and, you know, a human trafficker. I love the stuff she gets into, the Roman law and the code of Napoleon. Uh could go back. They always knew their families. They could always go back to their family. It was a very big thing to know your birthright. It was open way back then. It was open up until all the way up until the 1920s and 30s. It was open. There was never like if you took in someone else's child, they were even saying babies knew mm-hmm. went to. So you'd say, oh, it was almost like guardianship. That part wasn't secret. It never was secret because they always wanted to know who that child was. And you you knew your birthright, what family you were from. You were told about them, so you knew who you were. And then come the twenties came in the orphan trains. Yeah, they claimed that they did the secrecy to avoid the exploitation of kids, and you know. But I don't know that that's the whole story. She kind of nails it with the history part, and I just because it thought, was really interesting. It was interesting. What else did you feel? It's not a long chapter, but it has a lot in it. Well, and then it goes into the ambivalence and shame, which is Mm. what I was talking about with the infertility and all that stuff. But I thought it was interesting about that woman that talked about after she adopted her daughter, that she felt excluded from a special club of mothers. Like she had this adopted baby from Korea, then she did get pregnant and give birth. And then she felt like she was part of the club. So it's almost like people look at adopted kids as kind of a not desirable thing. They even said, you can still hear comments like, I wouldn't want to adopt. You don't know what you're getting. Oh, I had that actually said to me by by friends. I mean, I might have brought that up in something else we talked about, but that exact line was said to me when I was at dinner with friends years ago, we talked about you know, adoption. And I hadn't said yet that I was adopted and I didn't know these people well at the time. And they said, oh, I wouldn't want to adopt. You just don't know what you're going to get. And probably those kids are so messed up. And I'm just sitting there like, wow, this is, and this is before I'd done any of this thought process work. I'm just like, heck. It's messed up. The things people say. My grandmother was adopted, my adopted grandmother. And this was back in the teens and 20s, right? She was born in 1909. So her birth parents had her grandparents raise her and she was told that her grandparents were her parents. So she didn't know till much till later. But then her parents went on to have more kids later in life together. But my grandmother, when her grandparents were too poor during depression era and all that, they would send her sometimes to stay with aunts and uncles 
in the same town where her brothers and sisters were not knowing and not knowing that her parents were there and they'd go shopping, you know, with her aunt and uncle and all her cousins. And then people would say, Oh, are these all your kids? And they would say, yes, all but her. Oh my God. You know, my grandmother had crippling self-esteem her entire life. Like I even recognized that in her and Wow, that's crazy. I don't know that I knew that story. Yeah, maybe you didn't. She's the one that lived till she was 101. And she voted. And I remember yeah. her. Yes. Can I read the part where she ends it here? I was just yeah. Like, when we talk about adoption, we're talking about the conspiracy of silence that surrounds those mysterious unbegotten and misbegotten births. It's the silent and mystery that sink early into an adoptee's soul. Mm, so well put. I mean, it's just, she just ends it like, yeah, it just sinks in. Like every word of hers, I just linger on. Our next chapter is called The Hidden Relationship. Okay. I'm going to speculate that that hidden relationship is between adoptee and birth mother. Yeah, I think so. And we'll find out because we do not read ahead. So read. Yes, we don't read ahead. (laughs) So if anyone's. Leave comments on our Facebook page or Twitter, Instagram. Yeah. We'd like love to hear what you think. Community in this. Yeah. And, and read along with us. A lot more people are this time. So it's kind of fun, actually. Yeah. Not to be in it alone. Just you and I out there. All right. Well, this is awesome, Sarah. As yeah. always. Have a and now we have a great guest. Yeah. See you soon. See you soon. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Louise and I talked about it for months and we were intimidated until we heard about Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout is hands down the best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories like Apple, Spotify, Google, and more. Podcasting isn't hard. Believe me, if Louise and I could figure it out, anyone can. We got a mic, some headphones, parked ourselves in our closets, and that was it. Buzzsprout did the rest. You get a great looking podcast website and you can track all of your analytics to see how your podcast is doing. So if you follow the link in our show notes, it lets Buzzsprout know we sent you and you get a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan. And bonus, you help support our show. Hi, I'm just going to break in here. As a friend of the podcast and a fellow Patreon, I want to join Louise and Sarah in thanking everyone who has reached out. Frankly, I've been astounded at the number of listeners from across the world who have shared their unique stories with our podcasters. I believe in the healing power of stories. As a Patreon, I've found such pleasure in supporting the podcast And in seeing how adoptees find their people, I know how much Louise and Sarah are moved by each Patreon support. Their immediate goal is to be able to air the podcast weekly rather than bi-weekly. Eventually, they would like to advocate for more effective ways of adopting children. If you would like to support this important work, either once or in an ongoing way, Simply go to patreon.com, then in the search bar, type adoption colon the making of me. Thank you all, each in your own way, for bringing us together. And now let's rejoin our hosts. Well, hello. Here we are for another episode. 
today's guest, we met through Twitter. He reached out to me and asked if our podcast was available in England. I'm like, it's available everywhere. And would you like to be on the podcast? So that's really great. It's nice to have someone to hear about another country's adoption situation. So welcome, David Benjamin. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. We'll just jump right in. Give us your story. Thank you. My story is very much like many adoptees that I've listened to on your podcasts. I was listening to Melissa last Mm. week and lots of similarities between my story and Melissa's story. I am 49 years old, the big 5-0 this year, and uh, born in 1972. And I was adopted when I was six weeks old in 1973. And in England, before 1975, it was very difficult for adopted children to get any details, birth details, files, all that sort of thing from the local authority. But there was a lot, there was a change in the law in 1975 where adopted children were allowed to apply for their birth files and records and things like that. But they had to go and see a therapist first, which I'll get onto a bit later. So, yeah, like I say, I was adopted at six weeks old. I was born in the northeast of England, just south of Scotland, a place called Newcastle, Newcastle upon Tyne. And I was given away and to adopted parents who lived in a place called Middlesbrough, which is in a place called Teesside, which is about an hour sort of south of Newcastle. So we're about two and a bit hours from Scotland on the train. David, where were you for those six weeks? So I was in a, a mother and baby home. So my birth mother was 17 years old. Like many other adoptees, you know, she got pregnant accidentally and very big Catholic family brought shame on the family, you know, and she was given the choice of either keeping me and being cast out Mm. of the family or I think when she was about six months pregnant, she got sent to this unmarried mother's home where she stayed until she had me and then stayed for six weeks. Um, So she was with you for those six weeks. Yeah. 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 And I'll come on to a bit that I guess a bit in a bit, but you know, obviously that bond, you know, when you think about attachment and things, you know, I must've made a huge bond with her over those six weeks. So yeah, I was given away, grew up in a place called Middlesbrough, one adopted sister who was adopted from a different family, but very similar circumstances, two years younger than me. Oh, two years uh, younger, I was just going to ask. Yeah, and we grew up. It was a, you know, all our needs were met. It was a very religious family. The church sort of ruled our family life, I guess, a very evangelical, Pentecostal sort of sort of church life. And my parents, you know, very, very dogmatic, very almost gave away their yeah. parenting responsibilities at times to the church. You know, I remember being threatened, you know, by being sent to the pastor rather than being disciplined by my parents, which was, which was all quite bizarre. Were you but, yeah, close to them? I was close to my, my mum, not close to my dad. No, my dad was, and still is, a very hard man to exist alongside. My adopted mum died about 20 years ago, and my dad's still alive, but we, we don't really, we don't get on. And Does a bit your sister get on with him? She does actually, yeah. Well, I think she more tolerates him than mm. than gets on with him. She puts a bit more effort in, I think, 
than I do, but he treated her very differently to how he treated me when I was growing up. So yeah, I had a nice life. I remember my mum, do you say mum? We say mum from where I'm from. Do you say mum? Mum. Mum, mum, (laughs) M-O-M. It's a very northeast of England term. You say mum, M-A-M. Oh, Um, ma'am. Mum. And I remember her sitting me on the side of the bed. I was probably about five years old, doing that classic sort of explanation of how they sort of chose me from a hospital and brought me home and they love me very much. But I, I don't actually remember her using the word adoption. And then after that, it was it was never mentioned, like literally never mentioned ever again. So I always sort of knew I was different. I mean, anyone with eyes would realise that I was no relation whatsoever to my parents or to my sister. You know, I had very blonde hair when I was young, sort of pasty white skin. And my sister sort of like really olive, olive skin, brown eyes, sort of really dark so your colour hair sort of Sarah. So yeah, we looked nothing alike, but no one ever mentioned it. It was it's quite astounding, I find, that no one ever sort of put two and two together and sort of said, I'm sure you're not related, but they never did. So we just, just went through life knowing I was adopted or knowing that I was different. It was obviously before the internet. So, you know, couldn't just type it into Google and say, you know, what is adoption? Didn't did, have any of did that. Did sister ever discuss it? Now and again, but no, not really. We sort of had a silent sort of bond, you know, because I, I didn't have anyone else. And none of my friends were adopted, as far as I know. No other family members or anything like that adopted. So I, I was thinking today, actually, just I have a memory of sort of telling a couple of my friends when I was maybe early teens, plucked up the courage because I was hugely embarrassed by it. And I remember saying to them, I'm actually adopted. And they were like, no, you're not. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> Didn't believe me. <laughs> so it was very secretive. Our family was very secretive. My parents were very proud people. Obviously, with the church stuff, you know, you didn't, you didn't admit a weakness. You gave it to Jesus. So there was there was no way of talking about feelings. There was no way of expressing how I felt or you know, exploring this stuff because it was never mentioned, you know. I remember once there was a dead rat <laughs> in our house. This is just an example of what they were like. There was a dead rat and it, it really smelt. In, and my, I remember my dad pulling up the floorboards and were like with a hammer in his hand in case it was alive. And um, obviously to me as like a 12-year-old or something, having a dead rat in the house was like the most exciting thing in the world. <laughs> and I, I, remember, I remember the family meeting afterwards that we had this conference of like we must never tell anyone about this rat because of just the embarrassment you know it reflected poorly on on the family exactly and that was that's their sort of ethos on everything it was like absolutely maintain silence on everything so that was my upbringing really which gives Um, you a sense of shame in a way i guess absolutely you know and obviously those messages from shame like you know i'm not good enough there's something wrong with me, I'm not lovable, you know, I'm not good enough, all that sort of stuff. Absolutely was stuck to me, you know, like labels almost. So yeah, that was my childhood, a lot of church stuff. But just, it was good, you know, it was good. My dad was very, he's a disciplinarian. 
you know, that sort of Christian thing of, you know, spare the rod, was it spare the rod, spoil the child? And it was very harsh with me. He used to hit me, but very brutally. You know, he used to make me choose sometimes, do you want the hand or do you want the slipper? You know, and as an eight-year-old child, I mean, he's a very big guy, rugby player, sportsman. That was very scary. I guess there, I was, this probably isn't the case. Was there alcoholism? <laughs> Did you say that? Because I'm oh. thinking. <laughs> I, um, I, I said it right as you, t- that was timely. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they were, t- they were teetotal. Alcohol was like the worst sin in the world. You know, it was it was of the devil. Alcohol. To be honest, everything was of the devil. <laughs> that must that's a head trip to be raised like that in such yeah. and then it's hard to get it out of your system too, isn't it? It takes a yeah. lot of kind of deprogramming. Absolutely. It was almost cult. Yeah. Like, I mean, we we did almost join a cult. I say a cult, I'm sure they wouldn't describe it as a cult. It was, <laughs> it was this thing in the like a commune sort of community called the Jesus Army. We nearly joined as a family. We I remember going down one Christmas and staying over Christmas and New Year because my parents were thinking of <laughs> thinking of joining this thing. Thankfully we didn't. But yeah, I mean there were elements of there were good things about that. The good thing about that for me was the youth club at the church was fantastic. You know, there was about 30 people, teenagers, my own age, and we just used to hang out together and it was I got into music, you know, I'm a musician, got into playing in bands and things like that in various different places and stuff. So, yeah, there was... Ask you if, you're, if your friends had similar home lives. Like, very similar. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because we all... Because sex before marriage was seen as such a horrific thing. Devil's work. Yeah. It's, it was up there with alcohol, you know. We all got married to each other really, really young. So I got married when I was like 20 and, and she was 19. And there was a big group of us got married. And, you know, that marriage didn't last. You know, that lasted seven years and then, you know, we got divorced. But I was chatting to one of my old friends actually a few weeks ago and we counted out of about 12 couples who all got married in similar circumstances. Ten of them have either, you know, been divorced, had affairs, you know, marriage problems, all that sort of thing. And, that you know, that's not a coincidence. In my opinion, it was just pressure put on you to marry really young. I mean, I've got two children. If they came to me at 19 and said, I'm getting married, I would we'd be having a conversation. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I did, you know. So, yeah, it was a bit of a crazy upbringing, to be honest. Very. Did, uh, did your parents stay religious for all those years or did they? Yeah, yeah. And then, and how did you kind of extricate from, I'm assuming you did. And, you know, I still would say I'm a Christian, would still go to church, and but I'm not, I'm very liberal, I guess you would say. It, it was tough being in that environment, and I don't, I don't see it as very nice, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. It, it didn't marry up with what it was meant to be. So, yeah, I've sort of gone my own path, I guess. Did um, your wife go through that together a little bit? Perhaps my, my, when, when you were married, when you were young? Yeah, so she was. She had exactly the same upbringing as me, really. So very dominant, male, patriarchal. You know, even in the church, women had to wear hats. Women weren't allowed to speak on the platform. Women weren't allowed to say anything without their husbands stood next to them. You know, it was completely bizarre. Very patriarchal. 
Yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> no, no. Like no. It. Talking about talking about it now. So you were married, then you got divorced after seven years. Did you have children in that marriage? No, we didn't have children. We both decided we didn't want children. I mean, we should never have got married. I mean, we ticked every box why you shouldn't get married, basically. How we lasted seven years is a mystery, but we didn't have children, thankfully. So um, then so, yeah. the, the adoption was never, ever discussed again. Never. And then when did you really become aware and want to know more about yourself? So when I became aware was my sister, my sister, like I said, who's two years younger, her birth mother hired a private detective to find her. And so she, one day she just randomly got this letter through her door from her birth mother, just you know, saying how it is. My name is such and such. I am I'm a birth mother. I've been looking for you, etc., etc., and completely freaked her out. She didn't want to know. She was very bitter. Why would I want to know this woman who gave me away? So she tore the letter up. Oh. Um, she burnt it. I think she burnt the letter. But actually, she told me about it, and something, a little switch in me just flicked, and all of a sudden. After all these years, I think it was about twenty. I was about twenty-six. I think twenty-seven at this point. After twenty-seven years, all of a sudden, I became really curious about my own adoption. So I started to search, as we all do. And like I said, it was before the internet, so I had to sort of go to the library and use one of those big microfish oh, yeah. <laughs> scanner things, you know. But you know, like I said, the, the law changed in seventy-five. So I had to go, I was supposed to go and see a therapist, but I, it was a social worker who I went, I went to see to get my birth file. And she didn't do anything, to be honest. And she just, basically my birth file was like one side of A4 paper with hardly any detail on it and my original birth certificate. So that's when I found out that my name had been changed. So when I was born, I was called Alexander John Casey and my adopted parents had changed my name, obviously, to David so that yeah, that was that was a massive thing for me to think that I, I was called something else for several six weeks, months. Six weeks, yeah. Well, six yeah, I guess you know the adoption takes a little while to go through. So I, a few months, I guess I was called Alexander, which is quite bizarre. But yeah, so I searched. So I, all I had was a name. I had a name of my birth mum, and that she'd got married in 1973 and changed her name. So all I had was a name, and. So I searched in a place called South Shields because that's where she lived, in a place called South Shields, which is on the coast, just near Newcastle, and really, really amazing, beautiful coastline. And, and I, got, I got a name and I got an address. I think I got two, two separate ones that I thought maybe it could be her. And I took that back to the social work and she wrote a letter on my behalf and, you know, in a way that if it was her, she'd instantly know and if it wasn't her, then it wouldn't make sense. And then the waiting game began. And I think that's that's when the obsession kicked in. I think Nancy Verrier describes it as like the ghost life, ghost existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought every single woman who looked, who had blonde hair was my mother. I remember even following people down the street <laughs> thinking she could be my mother because she could have been. I didn't know. And that really messed with my mind I think I remember actually a woman 
contacted me because we sort of had the internet, but not really the internet. You know that internet when, I don't know if it was like in America, but we had what's called dial-up internet. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or you'd wait 20 minutes to, (laughs) you could go start a movie and come back (laughs) and it still wouldn't have loaded. (laughs) And you couldn't use the phone in the house and use the internet at the same time. (laughs) And so I, I think I'd sort of joined some forums and just put my name out there, you know, as someone who was searching. And I got two phone calls, actually, who were just from birth mothers, wondering whether I was there. A similar sort of name, like it was Benjamin David or David something else or Benjamin whatever, wondering if I was their son. Um, oh, it's sad, isn't it? It is. It's really sad. But that, like, that jolt within me, like, what, like electric shock going when I, you know, I spoke to these women thinking this could be my birth mother. So th- th- I remember those two weeks of waiting were just like the- it was horrendous because something had started in me that I couldn't stop. And then after two weeks, I, the social worker rang me and said, she's been in touch. She's called Mary. Mary's been in touch and she's your birth man. I just remember the whole, my whole world just falling apart. And so I went to the social worker's office and, you know, went through the letter. She sent me a letter and some photographs, but she also said that she'd had another son a year after she had me who did she'd kept me secret all this time and he didn't know that he had a brother uh-huh. so she wanted she wanted a bit of time to tell him that he had this secret brother was uh, he a different father yeah different father yes and so I think about another week went past and then she contacted me again and said I'd love to meet you I'm quite an impulsive person. I tend to sort of jump into things with both feet. I don't really do consequences. (laughs) And so I went against all the advice from the social worker about meeting in a public place or taking someone with you, you know, meeting in a, I don't know, in a hotel or a park or something like that. I just went on my own to her house. (laughs) I went the night before just to see where it was. It's about 50 minutes, an hour's drive from where I live now, and just walked in. And her husband met me at the door. He's called David. <laughs> and the most freaky thing of all is she named her other son David. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Completely independent of my adopted parents calling me David. Three Davids. Very freaky. And I walked in, and there she was. There I was, because we look so similar. And I have never, obviously never looked like anyone in my life, in my family. So I think that was the first thing that hit me was, oh, I look like someone, you know. She was crying, I was crying, you know, it was just, even now talking to you, I can still feel it, mm-hmm. even though it's like 20 years ago. Do you think that you, well, I think obviously you did, had some sort of cellular memory of your early bond and spending all mm-hmm. that time together as a baby? Yeah, there was definitely something supernatural there. I don't know what you want to call it. That mother-baby bond thing that you can't really really sort of put a word on it. That yeah, I felt a connection. I felt a connection with this stranger that was really strong and really strange and weird and lovely as well. I'd maybe describe it as love, you know, that actually... And I didn't know any of her story at this point. You know, the letter that she sent me was, you know, just basic facts. Mm-hmm. I didn't know why she'd given me away or if she wanted to give me away or how she gave me away or anything like that at this point. 
I didn't know any of that. And I didn't have that same bitterness that my sister had at all. I think I, I had compassion for her, I think, even not knowing her story. You know, just the thought of giving a baby away. I mean, yeah, I've got two children of my own now. Yeah. The thought of giving one of them away, I mean, just horrendous. You know, I, I saw there was a quote on Instagram. I, I don't know if you heard about it in America. There was a refugee crisis. I think it was somewhere in Europe, maybe the Ukraine or Syria. I know Syria is not in Europe, but somewhere. And there was a boat came across the the English Channel full of refugees. This was, I think, last November, maybe, and some of them had drowned in the sea. Yes, I, I did read about that. Ugh. And someone yeah. put this quote on Instagram, and it was, no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. And I just I just felt that for Mary, really. She, maybe, you know, she put me in a boat, you know, because it felt safer than actually where she was and. I've come to know over the over the last 20 years, and that's true. Lots of hardship, you know, don't get me wrong. I've got all the classic adoptee signs of, you know, early trauma and, and all of that. And I'm a therapist myself. I should have said that at the beginning, shouldn't I? <laughs> I'm a therapist specialising in trauma and adoption and attachment, just like Melissa <laughs> from last week. And, yeah, so I just felt love for this woman. And then my whole world fell apart after that. We talk about the fog, don't we? We talk about the adoption fog. Yeah. And it's not really a term I really like, but I think it, it, it sort of serves a purpose. I think, <laughs> I think the fog started for me, to be honest, when I, when I found my birth mother. I think that's when the absolute mind messiness sort of started to unfold for me. Well, and you were also, you know, young. How many people... It's a hard thing to face truth at that age, you know. Yeah. To be ready for really deep work. Yeah, absolutely. And I just went with it. You know, I went through that classic honeymoon period of it being like a new toy. You know, this is this is my family. This is where I belong. I look like these people, you know. Yeah. I grew up in a really tiny family. There's hardly any of us. You know, both my granddads had died before I was even adopted. My parents were quite old. I think they tried to have children naturally and for a long time. You know, they, they, were nearly, they were nearly 40 when, when they adopted me. And we had a tiny family, but my, my birth family, there's thousands of them. It's like, <laughs> it's like, the, maf- it is like the mafia. <laughs> Irish descent. So, yeah, that really freaked me out as well because, you know, I've only ever been related to about five people, I think, in my life. And now I'm related to like hundreds Literally. And over the years, I've, I've sort of met a few of them and sort of tried to work it out. How did the other David do with you, the other son? Yes. Yeah, so he was an only child and he always wanted a brother. I mean, we're very, very different. I should say that Mary married someone in the army, the British army. So, and they were stationed in Germany for 23 years so <laughs> if she'd kept me I would have grown up in in Germany which that messes with my mind a little bit so my, my brother obviously was born in England but then grew up in Germany he joined the army as well with <laughs> we're very different he's this he's this very big hard army you know Royal Marines sort of guy who likes fighting and you know, you know, I am I'm sort of this pasty faced academic type person who likes sort of drinking single malt whiskey, smoking cigars, <laughs> reading poetry. So we're we're very, very different. 
Well, well, actually, it was, it was a bond, definitely. Th- that must come from your birth father's side then. Do you know anything about your yeah. birth father? Yes. So I think just with the theme of secrecy, you know, I was, I was thinking about this before, obviously, I came on this. Everything in my life has felt secret. So like my mum telling me I was chosen, but she never mentioned adoption. And that was all very secret. And it was never mentioned and secret. I never knew my story. That was all very secret. And, you know, Mary had kept me a secret from, from David. And so obviously the final piece in the jigsaw for me was finding my birth father. So I'd, I'd broached the subject with Mary a couple of times and she just got really emotional and said, I can't, I can't talk about it. I can't talk about it. Turns out he's her second cousin, which is why I've got six fingers on each hand. No, <laughs> just um, I'm great on the piano. <laughs> that joke gets mixed reviews. <laughs> especially, from, especially from social workers. Um, we enjoy those jokes. <laughs> which explains why it brought such shame on the family, you know, when, when she got pregnant and he was told just to go, you know, leave home. And he was about four or five years older than her, I think. She was 17 when she was she had me and he was, I think, 22, 23. So, yeah, I tried to find out, but she wouldn't tell me. And I was getting really agitated because I thought, I'm, this is my right. I need to know this. So in the end, I ended up talking to her, her husband and immediately it was really funny because I said, I said, oh, David, he's called Dave. The other one's called David. Dave, can I have a word? And he immediately said, you want to find your father, don't you? I said, oh, yeah. He said, right, I'll talk to Mary. I'll see what I can do. And he just got a name. I literally just had a name. So again, <laughs> I had to go back to the microfish <laughs> and, you know, in the library. You again. Search. <laughs> search all over again. And I got an address, weirdly, about like half a mile from Mary's house. Wow. And wrote a letter. Just again, just wrote a letter. Put my name and my phone number on there. And I was at work one day and my phone my phone rang with just, just the number. So I answered it and there was this this voice said, uh, hi, is that David? Yeah. He said, oh, hi, I'm Richard. I'm your dad. Wow. Literally. And I was speechless, you know, as you would. Be. Had so he known that you were born? He knew I was born, but he'd been told by the family never to. Yeah, basically. And he'd been told that I'd been in uh, children's homes and foster care and I'd had a really bad life and he should never get in touch with me. So they'd sort of put him off the scent. So he was really shocked and surprised when I said, none of that is true. I've had a good life. That's horrible for him too. Yeah. Yeah. And he's a really nice guy. You know, he's been a bit naughty in his life. He's been in prison and very different, very different to me. And he's got two children as well. So two, another another half brother and another half sister that I didn't know. Are you know close I, to them? They weren't bothered about me. <laughs> Which surprises me because if I just found out I had the secret brother, I'd be like, I'd be dead excited. But no, his his son had learning difficulties. He didn't really understand. Even mm-hmm. though he was an adult, he, you know, he was sort yeah. of, you know, impaired in that way. And yeah, his daughter, just not bothered really. I went out for a meal with them a, a couple of times. I played snooker with him. And he sort of wanted to keep in touch. And he came around my house and met my family. And, and again, I really look, really look like him. But then I, I sort of felt content after that. I felt actually my jigsaw is sort of complete. And so I let that slip. 
I lost contact with him and I've never, I probably haven't spoken to him now for 10 years, probably. And that feels okay. Isn't it strange about adoption? I was thinking about this the other day, just like not feeling at home any, you know, not really having a true family, if that makes, like not really belonging anywhere, at least for me. Yeah. I don't feel that I belong in either family, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And, you know, like for me, like Christmas is a nightmare because obviously I've, there's a big chunk of the story I haven't said yet, but I've got sort of these three families. You know, there's my birth family, there's my adopted family, and there's my own family with my wife and my, my children. Um, so I have like three Christmases, <laughs> but they never meet. So obviously the last the last part of my sort of, journey I guess on this was like I say my adopted mom had died by this point did she know you had met your birth mother and I kept it a secret yeah you You were carrying on the secretive tradition exactly I I carried on this secret you know I remember always being asked you know if you could have any superpower in the world what would it be and I would I always chose invisibility I would hide a lot when I was a kid yeah I know all children like playing hide and seek and making dens and you know, climbing trees and whatever. Looking back, I used to hide <laughs> a strange amount. Of, I used to hide in my wardrobe. I used to hide under my bed. Hide, make dens. Like this, like this big table thing in my bedroom. I used to hang sheets down and just sit under it. And part of that, part of that was a coping mechanism. After my dad had hit me, I would roll under my bed mm. and lie there till the pain had gone, and then I would, mm. I would come out, and it was never mentioned. And yeah, I do think I just, I hid it, that secret stuff. Maybe it was, I just felt so different and like I didn't fit in that, you know, hiding was my safe place. You know, even now, you know, being on my own is where I feel the happiest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love being with me. You know, we we laugh, we dance, we sing, we cry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love just going out for days, just walking on my own and, you know, um, I love it too. Yeah, that's where I feel the safest and and mm-hmm. sort of most relaxed. Like being on my own, you know, I can turn it on. I, I've been described as a selective extrovert because I can turn. I'm in a band. I'm a performer. You know, I can turn it on for the crowd, but actually, that's not my comfort zone at all. My comfort zone is just being on my own. So I'd kept it secret from my mum. She died. So the last bit of the puzzle, I guess, the jigsaw, if you want to call it that, it was telling my adopted dad. And bearing in mind my relationship with him was such that I probably couldn't even talk to him about the weather. Never mind, oh, hi, I found my birth mother. But I told a few friends and I thought, if he found out secondhand, that would be really bad. So I thought, right, I've got to do it. (laughs) Went around his house, sat in the car for ages outside, knocked on his door. Went in. I said, hi, Dad, I've got something to tell you. And he said, you haven't lost your job, have you? I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> not lost my job. He said, my wife's called Charlotte. He said, Charlotte's not pregnant, is she? <laughs> I was like, no. No, she's not. Definitely not. And then he changed the subject. And then he changed the subject. Talked about football or TV or something. I can't remember. Gardening. He's into gardening. And I, th- I was sitting there thinking, how on earth am I supposed to drag this conversation back to telling him that I found my birth mother and then he just stopped and said right like he'd sort of processed it a little bit what do you want to tell me and so I just said it I just came out and said oh I found my birth mother and he sort of paused and then he he just sort of said oh right 
I thought you weren't interested in that, <laughs> which I do find bizarre, the fact that he'd never mentioned it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> in like 27 years, you know. And I just said, well, you know, I've just got interested and found her and she lives in South Shields and this. And then I, I left and I thought, oh, wow, that went well. Wasn't expecting that. And then about three days later, there was a knock on my, my door at my house and my dad was there and he came in, sat down and it just, just erupted. Wow. How dare like you? angry? Oh. You know, oh, bitter, just wow. how dare you contact your birth mother? I want nothing to do with this. This is your life. You know, he said a few other hurtful things. He said, have you ever visited your mum's grave? When was the, oh. when was the last time you visited your mum's grave? You know, and, you know, I've never visited my mum's grave. I do things very differently. You know, I've said that. You know, I don't know where my mum's grave is. I know what cemetery that it's in, but I wouldn't have a clue where it was because that's not how I want to remember her, you know. She's alive in my mind and my memory and photographs and things like that. And then I had to ask him to leave, actually. I said, look, you've got to go. Because I was so upset. It was so hurtful. And several months went by and we didn't speak. I think my sister and my wife did a bit of mediation, I think, just to get us to connect again, because I was so hurt. And I, sort of, I tried to see his side, you know, and I made a big point of saying, you know, you're, you're not going to be replaced. You know, you're still my dad. I just want to find out, you know, where I come from and, and all that sort of stuff, but you just wouldn't. So to this day, so for the last 20 years, I've led this double life of having this birth family and this adopted family and it's bizarre. It's, it's tiring. It's tiring at times. It's really tiring at times. And I feel that's unfair, to be honest. You know, I do a lot of talks at prep groups for adopters. You know, I sit on adoption panels and foster panels and things. I told my story a lot over the last 10, 10 years. And I always say to adopt adopters, there's going to come a time in, in your child's life when they want to find out. And you have to let them. Mm-hmm. And not guilt them. It's just... yeah. Yeah, so that's the thing that lingers, I guess. You know, there's times I wish I'd never done it. There's times I'm really pleased I did it. At the start, like I say, at the start, that's that honeymoon period of several years. And then I lost touch with Mary for a little bit. And then we got back in touch. And she was very possessive. She was very clingy. She didn't want to lose me again. And I understand that, you know. But that sort of had the effect of pushing me away. I can relate to that. Yeah, I and don't do well with that. Sarah and I talk about that. Oh, I don't either. <laughs> and so we I like our alone time, a little alone <laughs> bubbles. I know clinging yeah. baby is like maybe the worst thing. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so I had to make that choice of you know I'd, in my work, my therapy work, I do a lot of inner child stuff. You know, healing the inner child and different parts and. There's an amazing book by, I think it's Emma Stevens. Is it Emma Stevens? Yes, The Gathering Place. Gathering Place, which I've just read. Yes, we know her, yes. We know her well. Incredible book, which talks talks about the different parts of her that she invites to this tree, you know. I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it. But, you know, that inner child in me was really triggered, really triggered. And so I I had to make the choice of either cutting contact completely with my birth mother and family or, and with my adopted dad, you know, or if I chose to stay in contact, I had to put very strong boundaries in place right. to protect myself, actually. 
And so I do that, you know, with my dad, my adopted dad. I generally wouldn't see him without my wife being there because he's just very critical and sarcastic and horrible, really, to me. Does he continue to bring it up to you if you're together? The adoption stuff. No, no, no. It would never be mentioned. Never be mentioned. But he's just critical in general Harsh. about, about yeah, your wife. And just... just critical in general. And, I, and I, you know, I've been through my own therapy, you know, to heal that inner, inner little self in me. My dad used to come round and to our house and he would he would just spout his, you know, wow, wow. sarcasm and he'd be critical. And I would dissociate into this eight-year-old self which is the time that that we identified in my therapy of when you know, he was hitting me the most and he was, you know, horrible to me. And I would stand there like a little child with my head well, down. You, you were a little child. No, I mean, as an adult. Oh, as an adult. Um, as an adult. So he would come round and, and my, my eight-year-old self would hijack the adult self in that moment. And I would just stand there. And after we'd gone, my wife would say to me, why, why do you let your dad talk to you like that? And it was just an automatic response. So like in my own therapy, I've, I've gone through those parts and, and healed them and reparented them and integrated them, you know, into the whole and, you know, all of that amazing, amazing therapeutic stuff. So now when he comes around, he's still himself, but actually I can stand with my head held high and actually he doesn't affect me anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's 84, you know, he's, he's never going to change. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of myself, actually, that I've done that. And come through that. That's a lot of hard work. It's very admirable that you're able to do that. Yeah. And with Mary as well, you know, I think I'm lockdown and COVID sort of helped a lot with my birth family because obviously we couldn't see them because, you know, we weren't allowed to go anywhere. (laughs) So it sort of faded a bit and it sort of reached a level now where, you know, there's. COVID's been a great excuse to not see people. I know it's a birthday. I can't tell you how many times I've used it. <laughs> yeah, play the COVID card. <laughs> Absolutely, and um, it's a birthday next week, and that's always a bit of a strange sort of feeling. You feel time, and I mean Mother's Day. Oh, Mother's Day yeah, for me yeah, is just just. Uh, I almost just want to go on holiday for you know a couple of days over Mother's Day. It's just a nightmare. Because I look at the Mother's Day, I look at the Mother's Day cards and the Father's Day cards. I don't know what they're like in America, but they're very sweet and oh, cheesy. Yeah. Sappy. And, you know, to the best father in the world, or, you know, to the most wonderful mother. And oh, it makes me want to vomit, you know. But, <laughs> and, and so, because none of that's true for me, you know. So, yeah, Mother's Day, birthdays, Christmas, all of that, all of those things are, I find really tough. Just because, of, yeah, the connotations of... Of all of that, really. Does your birth mother want to spend Mother's Day with you? She she would like to spend more time with me. She's retired, so she's got lots of spare time. But I've put the boundaries there. You know, I I always use the analogy of a zoo. You know, what makes a day out at the zoo a good day out? The cages, <laughs> huh? The boundaries. The bound. If it wasn't for the boundaries, it'd be absolute carnage. And you know, I say that a lot in therapy to my clients. You know, boundaries are so important, and so. I, and she can't, she doesn't understand that. She won't talk about, that's another thing as well. She won't talk about what happened. I'd love to be able to sit down and have a conversation of, well, how did you feel in the mother's home? What did it feel? She's told me a little bit of detail. You know, she, and, and I believe her, she said she didn't want to give me away. She said that she was holding me and her fingers were prized open by the, Aww. 
social worker and she was screaming the place down and I was literally snatched from her. You know, when you think about traumas, you know, for me, I mean, that must have been huge. Oh, how horrible. Um, And then, you know, in the 1970s in England, it was brutal. You know, it was like, right, you can go home now, get on with your life. No therapy, no social social workers or anything, you know. So, I mean, the trauma that she must be suffering must be massive. You know, I, I have a lot of compassion for her. I really do. But also a lot of questions, you know, could she have kept me? One thing I wrestled with a lot was, well, you had another baby a year later. Why did you keep him but give me away? That's something I've sort of wrestled with. But she won't talk about, again, secrets. Yeah. Mm. You know, lots of secrets. She won't talk about it. That movie, I, uh, the British movie, Secrets and Lies. Did you ever see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it made me think of that. Yeah. So that's quite tough because I'm obviously I'm now, you could say I'm out the fog and all the rest of it. You know, I, I used to be very secretive about my adoption. I remember when my, I met, first met my wife, in, my second wife in London, and she told all of her university friends that I was adopted. And I was mortified. We, we end up having this big argument on this corner of the street in Camden Town and me walking the streets because I just didn't, she wouldn't let me in her flat. And it was just, I was just like, I needed to be in control. You know, when you think about trauma and control, that, that was taken from me. So I didn't feel safe. But now, you know, I've, I've processed all that and come through that. And I can talk about it. So now the fact that Mary won't talk about it, I really struggle with that because I want to know. You know, I think it's my right. I've, I've got hardly any information, but she won't talk about it. And I feel really awkward asking her. You know, when I see her, I feel like I hold my breath for the duration of of seeing her because it feels so awkward. She often links links arms with me as we're walking down the street or on the beach. And that, that freaks me out. I don't know. I'm not sure why, but it really, and I, I just take an intake of breath and I just go with it, you know, because she obviously wants to link arms with me. But oh my goodness, that doesn't sit right with me at all. Now, maybe that's something else that I need to look at in my life. But I have come to a point of acceptance. You know, I was talking to someone last week about getting to that point of acceptance. And it, don't get me wrong, it's taken me like nearly 50 years to get there. I think I have come to the point of acceptance now. And obviously, a lot of my work. And passion is working with adoptees in therapy and telling my story. I'm writing a novel at the moment about my life and written songs about it and poems and, and all of that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm sort of using it and I've, I have come to terms with it. So it's hard when I come up against that wall of silence, really. When I, yeah. There's stuff there. Even after all this time, there's still stuff there that I don't know. And I'd like to know, but I'm not sure how I'm ever going to know that if she won't tell me. Maybe she'll eventually get there. I'm not sure. They're not that way inclined. They're not really into <laughs> talking about their feelings. They're lovely. They're wonderful, lovely people, kind, you know, generous people. But they're just not really, you know, into talking about stuff. Is your brother that way too? Just not yeah. into yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> they don't work from their thinking brain. Right, right, right. Sorry, their feeling brain. It's all right, you know, yeah. very much thinking brain. What about your sister? Did she ever yeah, decide to her. find her? Yes. So obviously she had that letter. And when I found Mary, he was the first person I told. And 
So we'd, we'd never talked about it. I remember we had a, a kid's party for my eldest son when he was about, he's 14 now, but when he was about three, you know, I had a kid's party and I, I'd actually invited my brother David and his wife and their kids. Uh, he's got three daughters, so there's three nieces. And my sister came as well with her husband and her kids and she came in and she saw them across the room and she just walked straight out, burst into tears and walked straight out. And so it was never mentioned. I never mentioned it again. Again, the secrecy. And then about two years ago, well, just before lockdown, so maybe it was three years ago, Christmas, we were around at their house for over Christmas. And she said, oh, can I talk to you? And went in the kitchen with her. She said, oh, I found my birth mother. Wow. And I was, over, I was overjoyed. I was, oh, that's wonderful. I said, well, when did you find her? She said, two years ago. <laughs> she kept that a secret from me for two years. Now she has a really good relationship with her birth mother. You know, I'm a little bit jealous because they're really rich. And, you know, <laughs> you know, I know a few people have said that sort of fantasy life that you have before you find, you know, you could be related to royalty or film stars. Oh, yeah, I thought I was an aster. In <laughs> <laughs> um, your sister's living this life now. Yeah, her uncle's like this diamond dealer in London. And it's just like, yeah, oh, wow. she's happy. But I think she's, she. If you, if you want to use the term the fog, she's very much still in the fog. You know, I went out for a drink with her the other week and she was very, she was saying, I don't really know where this is going to go with my birth mother. And so I would ask her questions. How do you feel about adoption and relinquishment? And yeah, fine. (laughs) I've had a good good life, you know, and she's very much, you know, she's 47 now. So, I mean, I don't know when, if she's ever going to sort of in sort of look into it more and stuff but yeah so she's she's got a good relationship her she was an only child so she's got no other siblings or anything so yeah she has found she she had a very bad experience with her birth father actually because he he just basically rejected her again yeah she said she found him contacted him and he's like no never contact me ever again don't want to know you wow I've got, I've got my own family they don't know anything about you please you know back off so that must have been hard. I mean, I've not spoken to her about it because she won't really talk about it. But. That probably s- shut her down a little bit. Yeah, that must have been really, really hard to be rejected like that. So, yeah, she has. I guess our sort of journey is complete, you know, the two of us, really. What a great story. And just the way you tell your story, yes. too, and, and your awareness, emotional awareness. Is, yes. I don't think people really come to that until they've suffered some sort of you don't do the work if things are working, right? I mean, yeah, so. exactly. And you know, it's still hard. It's still yeah. hard. You know, Nancy Verrier said, you know, an adoptee is an adoptee for life. And it's true. You can't get away from it. And, you know, some days are good. Some days are better than others. When you were talking about linking arms, I actually had a visceral reaction to that mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if it's you're doing the parenting or there's something. I could feel it. And I've not even had that experience. I, I had stuff like that with my birth mother. Yeah. And it, I know exactly that feeling. And in fact, she at one point said to me, you're, you're kinder or you're, you love the a strange dog on the street more you know, you give that dog more affection than you give me. And then that of course makes it worse, you know? Like, right. Yeah. And yeah. And she was like that with me, you know, I'm, I'm losing you. Why aren't you messaging me? Why aren't you contact? She, you know, she was, she did get obsessive at, you know, it would go. I'd go for two weeks, and she was saying, "You don't love me anymore." And 
Oh, oh my God. It's like a bad relation, like romantic. Relationship. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Was- I've had that. I've had those feelings though. When people, you know, in my biological family want to be close to me and I just do that. I can't yeah. do it. I don't know what it is. I want to be close mm. and with my own bubble around me, be close. Yeah. And geez, you yeah. can see it from her point of view, but when you were describing it, I literally felt myself do that, like cringe a little bit. It is like a ho- I hold my breath mm-hmm. when she does it. And I, all in my, in my think, if I'm in my thinking brain, I'm just thinking, right, I'll do it for her. Do it for her. Do it for her. Yes. Get it over with. Do it for her. Right. I can breathe. Right. I'm going to go home. <laughs> <laughs> that little spot under my desk is waiting <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. with the sheet over it. <laughs> yeah. That's the mental process. That, that's why I think we're still doing the work like our whole lives. You never yeah. really. And I think on a similar vein, you know, I, I can't call her mum. I just can't. The, the, I word, the, same thing. Uh-huh. the word gets to about there in my throat and then it just stops. But then it feels so awkward calling her Mary that I, I sort of try and engineer the, the conversation so I don't have to call her anything. That's almost as big as her linking arms with me. You know, that I, I try, I try. I, I can't do it. I cannot. And in 20 years, I've never called her mum. I just can't do it. There's something psychological there that just really just hinders me you know disables me really does i had the same thing it's interesting to hear this it was exactly Mm -hmm. the same feelings yeah did you and what did you come to terms with well she died in 2009 and of course i've had so much regret since then that i had so Mm. many walls up i didn't let her in and was emotionally Mm. defensive and so i think it's obviously a deep fear you know, abandonment again or something. And, and I, I have yeah. that wall up with most people, you know, it's yeah. very, so I think that's just part of my personality or I don't know what it is. I'm still, mm-hmm. I'm still seeking that answer, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It just doesn't say feel safe for me. Right. It doesn't feel, I mean, I am physically safe, but inside it, it, it feels this isn't right. You know, yeah. well, a lot, to ponder this has just been so it's been great i'm really glad we met you and me too i'm just thinking and thinking listening to you thank you for having me you know what a privilege i am grateful to my adopted parents i am you know they gave me life you know i I find it hard to criticize them even though it was very bizarre childhood and i've had lots of issues from my childhood but actually you know i am thankful for what they did, even though it's really tough, you know, really tough. So, you know, I am quite pragmatic about it. And I always say that as well when I do my talks, you know, actually, it's about love, isn't it? All Mm -hmm. of this is about love. Yeah. You can't get away from that. It's about love and children need love. (laughs) Yes. We all do. So, yeah. We do. Thank you for having me. That's (laughs) a great way to end it, David. It's all about love. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And we've loved our time with you. And thank you for all that you do. You know, I really enjoy listening to your podcast and your passion for this, you know, to to help others and to spread the word and use your experiences. You know, we do, we wear, we wear our scars like medals, don't we? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we're put on this earth to help others. So I think that's really beautiful. So thank you to what you do. You know, it's just brilliant. Appreciate it. Thanks, David. Thank you. Bye. That was great. He, his vulnerability and 
depth and understanding of his emotions is, I just love that. It's refreshing to me. It was refreshing. I was thinking a lot about my father, my adopted father's family. They're all British relations. And he came from a very hard upbringing. And he always said, no one spoke of anything, just that, you know, turn it over to God, the whole thing. And it resonated with me how he just sort of had to be in that as a child and then come out of this. It's huge. Yeah. The work he's doing is. is big for other people too. It's just being on here and speaking so openly about it, I think will help a lot of people. Yeah. His honesty and his vulnerability were really impressive and and then like he's still doing the work, right? I know. Well, and, you know, trying to figure out when something comes up, oh, okay, what is it that I have to work through? Why am I feeling that way? Okay, there's something else to work through. That is just such, I love that when people are mm-hmm. so self-aware and wanting to work through their stuff, you know? Self-aware. And Unlike like how he grew up or I mean, how com- I grew up or, you know. Like completely not- the opposite. Mm-hmm. And he's got... He's a therapist, but he's still not done doing the journey. Right. You know, it's not like I'm here and I'm helping. He's like, I'm in it too. Just, Any good therapist think, would, uh, worth uh, their salt is like that anyway. You know, you have to always yeah, that's be the, doing the work. There's always something. You're never going to be in some place. I'm just, um, <laughs> yeah, it's just not, it's part of the journey. So. It is. Well, that well what awesome. do we always say? Another great episode. Another great episode. Always. See you next time. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening today. And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at the Making of Me podcast. And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon the making of me. Bye. See you next time.